hello everyone. Well, 2022 has already been a record year for the approval of new cell and gene therapies. In fact, just a few days ago, Bluebird Bio received an FDA accelerated approval for Skysona for early active cerebral adrenal leukodystrophy, which is a neurodegenerative disease. So the timing is good for the podcast today as the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, or ARM, just released their updated cell and gene therapy sector report for the first half of 2022. For those that may not be familiar with the organization, ARM is the leading international advocacy organization dedicated to realizing the promise of regenerative medicines and advanced therapies. Twice a year, ARM surveys the cell and gene therapy landscape to advance the field and provide an update to their members, stakeholders, and the public at large. We're fortunate to have Stephen Majors, Senior Director of Public Affairs at ARM, as our guest today to do a deep dive into the sector report highlights. As ARM's Senior Director of Public Affairs, Stephen leads global communications and contributes to ARM's policy and advocacy objectives in Washington, in state capitals, and in Europe. He breaks down complex science for the public and policymakers and explains why policies need to change to ensure that patients can benefit from these groundbreaking advancements from the membership at ARM. Hi there, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast. How are things in Washington, D.C. today? Good morning, Chris. Uh, Great to be here. Things in in D.C. are Great. Um, busy as always. Weather's starting to turn, getting much cooler after a long, hot, humid summer. So uh, I think everyone has a little bit of an extra pep in their step. Yeah, it's, I guess it's that time of the year. Seasons are changing. And, you know, to that point, uh, you know, I was excited a couple of weeks ago to to see the the new issue of your sector report drop. And I I think, you know, I thought that this would be a really important topic for um, my listeners to, to go into a deep dive into the report. There's so many good insights in there. So maybe we can just jump right in and, and get into the report. Stephen, we've seen a number of firsts in the cell and gene therapy market already year to date in 2022. What have you seen as the biggest achievements of the year so far in the, in the sector? Yeah, that's right, Chris. It's been an action packed uh, first half of 2022 for sure. Um, it's actually been a record year uh, for the approval of new gene therapies to treat rare disease. Um, we've now had uh, the approval of two new therapies, um, both in Europe and, and next up uh, here in the U.S. fairly soon. Um, it, it's the previous record was not huge. It was it was only uh, one therapy, um, but uh, it's certainly significant that we've had two new therapies approved uh, in the same year. One of them uh, is a gene therapy to treat hemophilia A, um, and the other is a gene therapy to t- treat um, a serious disease called AADC deficiency. Um, and so those are the two that have been approved. Uh, it's also pretty likely that we'll get one uh, another decision on at least one more therapy, a gene therapy um, focused on hemophilia B. And so by all measures, this has been a very big year for gene therapy, and it's it's one that's likely to, to bleed into next year as well. And so another thing that we're really focusing on is the advancement of, of CAR-T therapies uh, for blood cancers. And so we've now had two of the early, the, the six early therapies approved 
we've now had two of those approved as earlier line treatments. So this means that instead of them just being available to patients as kind of a, a last line of defense, they're now available as a so-called second line treatment. And so we're seeing these therapies move up uh, the treatment pathway, which is is a great thing for patients and certainly um, a great thing to demonstrate how far this science has come in the last few years. Yeah, Stephen, it's good to see these amazing products moving earlier in the treatment continuum so that more patients can benefit from them. And I know there's a full slate uh, of new or anticipated regulatory decisions coming up over the next year and, and beyond. So if you're looking ahead, what regulatory or clinical milestones are you most excited about over the next year? So um, next year is also shaping up to be a very big year. It's particularly notable for sickle cell disease, which of course is a is a terrible disease um, that actually affects one out of every 365 um, black babies who are born in the U.S. And so this is a disease that's been traditionally um, underserved, not as much attention paid on it as it should be. But next year, we could have the potential approval of two uh, gene therapies to treat this disease and provide durable treatments and potentially cures for this disease. One of them is a actually a CRISPR gene editing based therapy. And this would actually be the first CRISPR therapy approved anywhere in the world. And that's just roughly 10 years after CRISPR was first discovered. So that's pretty amazing. Um, the other therapy is um, a, a kind of gene replacement therapy from Bluebird Bio. And so both of these are going to be very, very big deals for um, the sickle cell disease population. And so we're also looking at uh, data readouts for or more data readouts for allogeneic therapies. So these are uh, therapies that instead of using a patient's own cells, which is a very laborious process, they use donor cells. So these could potentially uh, make the manufacturing process more efficient and ensure that more patients can access these therapies. And so we're expecting more data readouts there. Um, and then some additional readouts around prevalent diseases like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease. So um, it's going to be another big year for the sector and for patients for sure. Stephen, one of the things I know that we've been tracking throughout the year, I'm sure you know, it's affected many of, of your members and, and, and folks who are developing assets in this space is the significant downturn in the equity valuations um, this year compared to 2020 and 21. It's causing issues with being able to raise cash and, and fuel the R&D engine. What, what do you see as the reasons for the downturn in 2022? And what do you what do you kind of foresee for the future? Sure, Chris. So, yeah, it is no secret that it's a very tough or has been a very tough investment environment out there. It's something that we certainly hear day in and day out about from our parent, from our um, uh, members. And so uh, for about the past year or so, we've seen kind of the market in general decline and we've seen biotech in particular uh, be hard hit. And so cell and gene therapy is, of course, not immune from that. And in fact, um, it has been particularly hard hit uh, within the biotech sector. And so one of the major reasons for this is that um, inflation expectations and actually ongoing inflation um, 
particularly hits uh, small early stage companies that are multiple years away from profitability. And that happens to be a lot of cell and gene therapy companies. So that inflationary macro environment is really a strong driver of what we've seen in terms of equity performance uh, for the, the cell and gene sector, those that are that are listed publicly. And of course, that has knock on effects back through kind of the, the financing ecosystem um, into early earlier stages of financing, because obviously the IPO route um, is important um, to investors who are kind of looking at the earlier stages. And so when that route closes down, that tends to have a knock on effect. The good thing is that we're still seeing a decent amount of venture capital investment despite this this environment. And so there's still a lot of interest out there in um, early stage companies with strong management teams and really exciting science. And and there's no shortage of really exciting science going on. Well, that's for sure. And I think, Stephen, one of the good you know, pieces of good news here is that your report shows that really the clinical trial activity, so investment in trials and development activity is still very robust uh, across the sector, right? What, what can you, I mean, what were your key takeaways around the clinical trial investment landscape? Yeah, so there's more than 2,000 uh, clinical trials going on around the world that we're tracking as of the end of the first half of this year. And so this is a combination of industry-sponsored trials and then academic and government-sponsored trials. And so um, both of these kind of work together in, you know, in, in an ecosystem. And um, North America, and particularly in the U.S., kind of leads from a regional perspective in terms of the number of trials. Uh, and then... Um, Europe has been a bit stagnant and then Asia Pacific has really started to advance rapidly in the last few years and in the, particularly in the early phase trials, which really shows that that early stage pipeline, um, is, is burgeoning in, in Asia Pacific, which will of course, um, mean that down the road, you'll see more and more therapies kind of coming out of the late stage pipeline there. Um, so overall, it's a really healthy ecosystem. There's about, 200 phase three trials, which supports um, predictions from regulators specifically in the US and Europe that they would expect to approve 10 to 20 new cell and gene therapies a year starting in 2025. Um, so that that pipeline is, is very, very robust. And um, I think it goes back to just all that great science um, that I was just talking about a few minutes ago in the context of the investment discussion. Yeah, I was definitely surprised by the sort of regional, uh, the differences in the regional investments and the Asia Pacific uh, region being, you know, just behind the U.S. So it's incredible there. I was wondering maybe if you could dig into a little, of, you know, which therapeutic areas and, uh, and you know, are driving the most interest in, in sort of cell and gene therapy development, Stephen. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of, uh, differences on a regional level. Um, traditionally, the U.S. and North America has been very strong and seen in had what I would call steady growth in terms of the number of trials and investment and a clear lead in the number of developers that are headquartered there. Um, and as I mentioned, Asia is is coming up uh, pretty strong recently, particularly in the early phase trials and increasingly in the number of developers. Europe has been something that we've been focusing on recently because 
traditionally Europe has been largely on par with the U.S. in terms of uh, from an earlier stage clinical trials and then investment um, and the approval of new therapies. In fact, both both of the therapies I mentioned earlier, the new gene therapies, though they were approved in Europe before they were approved, will be approved potentially in the U.S. And so um, there's been a leadership position there uh, kind of traditionally, but we're starting to see Europe fall behind on clinical trials and investment um, and stay stagnant in the number of developers. And um, that's something that we're watching closely because the, er the early stage pipeline in particular in Europe has really slowed to a trickle. And so we're kind of looking at the overall policy environment um, in Europe to, to, to see what can be done to kind of create a more healthy ecosystem so that trials are happening at the early end. And then you have kind of market access, reimbursement and, and patient access um, on the once you've had regulatory approvals. And so we're working a lot in Europe with policymakers to um, make them aware of the declines we're seeing and then work together on some some policy solutions that will help improve the ecosystem. Stephen, yeah, that's a nice segue into the, the sort of the second half of your sector report, which talks about how ARM is working to shape the policy and regulatory landscape in, in both the U.S. and Europe. Is you want to talk any you know specifically about any one or two sorts of efforts that are ongoing, um, starting first maybe with the U.S. and then maybe follow up that with Europe in terms of what ARM is doing to help evolve the policy landscape. Sure. Great question, Chris. So we're very much involved on the advocacy front in both regions. Um, in the U.S., uh, we've been particularly focused on the reauthorization of the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. Um, and this is a, a program that's reauthorized every five years um, to help the FDA review kind of all the therapies that are coming down the pike. And so this particular reauthorization has a number of items that are particularly important for the cell and gene therapy sector, one of which is just simply an increase in resources and staffing um, because the office at FDA, um, CBER, also has been in charge of reviewing the COVID vaccines. And so they've really been under a lot of um, pressure and workload over the past few years. And so PDUFA, um, and we hope it's reauthorized here in the next few weeks, uh, would provide necessary resources to the FDA so that they can not only kind of do um, or address the workload that has been there previously, but also ramp up to have the ability to review all that wave or that coming wave of therapies that I mentioned earlier. Um, and there's also some interesting policy items in there around uh, chemistry manufacturing controls issues, which are important to the, the manufacturing of, of cell and gene therapies. Um, and so that, that's one area that we're focusing on uh, kind of from the regulatory perspective. And then on kind of market access and reimbursement, um, there's, of course, a lot of barriers in the U.S. payment system. Um, for entering innovative payment models. And so we want cell and gene therapy developers and payers to be able to come together um, and pay for therapies and then provide access to those therapies to patients um, under a system that's different than what we've had before. And so a lot of what we do at ARM is try to help policymakers reimagine 
a healthcare system that's been in place for multiple decades that never really in, in, envisioned having these types of therapies and potential cures um, to, to kind of modernize and be able to address kind of the higher upfront cost of these therapies, but the eventual kind of cost effectiveness and just, you know, overall improvement of, of patient quality of life that these therapies offer. And so there's a piece of legislation in the U.S. called the MVP Act, which would remove some of the barriers to innovative payment models um, in uh, the Medicaid program. And so we're, we're particularly focused on that as well. Terrific. And I think, did you want to note any particular um, policy effort uh, focused on the EU in particular? Sure, absolutely. So the EU is undergoing... Um, a revision of their general pharmaceuticals legislation for the first time in 20 years. And so um, we're working closely with policymakers there um, on this very, very large piece, piece initiative that basically looks at access, affordability and coverage issues. Um, and so we're, we're heavily focused on that. They're also undergoing um, something called joint clinical assessments. So one of the things that makes Europe challenging, of course, is that you've got kind of the European Union level in Brussels, and then you've got 27 different member states. And so traditionally, um, biotech companies would need to go through health technology assessment processes at each of those 27 different member states uh, in order to, to, to get their therapies on the market and available to patients. And so the joint clinical assessments process essentially provides um, a review process at that EU level that would then potentially be used by the member states. Um, and so it brings greater harmonization. However, it's important that this process use um, advanced therapy specific methodologies to review the therapies, because if they simply take what's been done previously in HTAs and apply, apply it at the EU level, um, it could even be an additional barrier to patient access in Europe. So that's something that we're also very focused on. Well, it's simply amazing the work that you're doing um, as an advocacy organization to advance the field of advanced regenerative medicine, cell and gene therapies from a policy perspective, Stephen. And I think that you're also doing a lot to kind of help uh, provide guidance to the industry. Uh, for example, the I know earlier this summer you published a cell and, and I believe a gene as well. These are guidance documents focused on really um, manufacturing and so forth. Can you? You want to talk a little bit about those uh, documents that uh, you develop for industry and, and how should companies be adopting these playbooks? Sure. Yeah, these are both very important initiatives. Um, Aging was published last summer, uh, or I should say summer of 2021, and then ACEL was published just a month or two ago. And basically, these are best practices documents for the industry to kind of help standardize their chemistry, manufacturing and controls process um, and to be able to kind of envision the type of workforce they will need um, to address manufacturing. Because the overarching issue that both documents try to solve, one for gene therapies and the other for cell therapies, is that um, these therapies are, are relatively new. They don't have established manufacturing processes. You are trying to manufacture consistently at scale living medicines with living cells, which have inherent natural variability. 
And so the challenges for manufacturing these therapies are much different than even um, monoclonal antibodies or other types of biologics that have come before. And so basically, ARM, along with a multi-stakeholder group, including our members, and in some cases, the FDA, came together to develop kind of a quality by design principles that can be applied to the manufacture of cell and gene therapies kind of modeling after what was done previously for vaccines and monoclonal antibodies because gene therapies are at kind of the same point now um, that monoclonal antibodies were back were at back in the 90s and of course we eventually figured out how to manufacture those consistently at scale and i think we're going to get there with gene therapies and cell therapies as well and this is kind of arms contribution to help make sure that happens and so our hope is that Members and other companies in the sector will adopt these documents, use it as a playbook internally. And then that, of course, um, university programs and educators will use the documents to kind of help train the workforces to the future. So, Stephen, I think these are fantastic tools and resources uh, for the developers of cell and gene therapies uh, going forward. And it's an example really of how ARM is really continuing to challenge the status quo and conventional thinking about development and commercialization of these new new therapies. In light of that, I mean, what advice do you have for biotech leaders about commercializing and ensuring market access for advanced biologics and regenerative medicines? Sure. So ARM, of course, is not um, commercializing therapies itself. And so the way I would answer this answer that is to say that, you know, there's certainly lessons learned and suggestions and advice that we've heard from the executives of our member companies who've been successful with that. And so I can kind of give a, a brief picture of that. So basically, you know, we've heard from our members that it's really important to start the process really early um, to bring your kind of market access discussions um, with a patient perspective very early on um, in the discussion in the company alongside your clinical strategy and not kind of sequence it um, sequentially, um, which has been done, which is the standard practice in kind of traditional pharma. Um, Also to start engaging early with stakeholders, with physicians, with payers, with the entire ecosystem, because these therapies are just very, very different than than kind of traditional pharmaceuticals, and they they require new ways of thinking and early engagement to help stakeholders understand. Um, and that kind of goes to the point of of not adopting the same playbook that uh, has been used to to commercialize and get in and provide market access around traditional pharmaceuticals. Um, Patients, of course, are, are very important here. The patient journey for cell and gene therapies can be very complex. Um, the diagnosis, the involvement in clinical trials, the, the having the need to understand um, what how these therapies work, what it will mean um, in terms of kind of quality of life. Um, and so it's very important to engage patients earlier on and then kind of to bring that perspective all the way through um, the, the different um, company functions as you're kind of laying out your clinical R&D commercialization strategy. So those are some of the things that we've heard from the companies that have been successful. Um, and so I, I think uh, they provide a little bit of a general playbook for how companies in the future um, can think about this. <clears throat> Well, great, Stephen. I think 
just give you an opportunity here to share any final insights from the sector report that we didn't cover. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share that you, you, you want to bring to light from the report? Um, I think I would also just mention, you know, another big deal this year, of course, was the entrance into the clinic of um, base editing um, in vivo, which is kind of uh, you have CRISPR, um, which kind of cuts and, and changes DNA. And then you've got base editing, which can change kind of individual letters of the the, the genetic code. And so this is kind of the next step along the way, the the journey of gene editing. And so it was a big deal that this entered the clinic earlier this year. And certainly that's something that we'll all be watching closely um, to see the kind of the initial data readouts there. And what was also notable about that is that this was for a common cause of heart disease. And so traditionally, um, this technology has been focused on rare diseases, and, and that's very important, of course, but we're also starting to see progress in more prevalent diseases. And so the ability of this technology to reach much, much larger patient populations um, is certainly something um, uh, very much in the realm of possibility in the coming years. That's great. And yeah, thanks for flagging that and super excited. I know, I know you're, you must be very busy preparing for meeting on the Mesa, which is just around the corner being held in Carlsbad in mid October. Uh, what are you most looking forward to at the meeting this year? Yeah, it's uh, it's always a, a busy um, kind of uh, period leading up to, to meeting on the Mesa, which is in a beautiful location. Everyone really enjoys it. So this year we're looking at record attendance. I think there's just a lot of um, people excited about getting back out there post COVID. Um, just a lot, a lot of excitement about the sector. And so we're looking at potentially around 17, 1800 people out there joining us in Carlsbad. Um, we've got a number of really interesting items on the agenda. Uh, we'll have Peter Marks, uh, Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA on a panel with regulators from Europe and Japan to kind of talk about what global reg regulators can do to work together to start bringing about some regulatory convergence to address kind of the, the difficulty in biotech companies bringing um, therapies to different geographies with different requirements. Um, we've got an interesting session on gene editing advancements and kind of everything that's happening there, some of which I've referenced in the conversation today. We'll hear from Bluebird Bio um, talking about their successful interactions with uh, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or which is sort of like a, a U.S. version of an HTA assessment. Um, and of course, many other sessions as well. And then this will also be um, the new the, the first Mesa attended by our recently announced CEO, Tim Hunt. And so I think that will also make it notable. Um, and then our events team just does a phenomenal job of putting on this event. So it's, it's really, really well run. And um, we're all very much looking forward to it. Well, I can't wait, Stephen. I'm looking forward to, to seeing you out in, in Carlsbad uh, next month. And uh, just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to share with uh, my audience uh, the, all the great insights from your first half sector report. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, pleasure being here and um, look forward to seeing you. Thank you all for listening today. Boulder Biotech Launch Specialists helps biotech leaders enhance their strategic new product positioning and communications while improving operational launch readiness. 
We've developed a 360 launch accelerator framework to help you address your launch readiness pain points. If you're ready to see how our 30-day launch diagnostic can help your organization, please contact me directly at chris at bblsconsulting.com to schedule a discovery call.